Lord, we think about this week, it's Thanksgiving, and there's so much for us to give thanks for. Um, For this space where you have provided an opportunity for our church to meet, for the friends and family who are here, for, for every breath that we take, for every moment of life that you have given us, which is precious. Um, we give you thanks for your constant provision. We give you thanks for your word that reveals your heart of love for us. We give you thanks for the cross, for beautiful cloudy days in Arizona. For so many things, Lord, we could stand here all day and sing praises over all of the things that we have to be thankful for. And we do just worship you for that. And I pray this morning as we study your word that you would teach us to love as we wrap up this series, How to Build a Church, that, that you would encourage us in this endeavor to love you and to love one another. And so walk with us through these moments ahead, we pray. Amen. Um, I would love for you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 15. I'm going to hit a couple of things here, and then we'll end up in 1 Corinthians 13. And if you don't have a Bible, maybe this is the first time that uh, you've been to church or you just don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. In the back corner, we have some available. So after the service, again, look for the eight-foot-tall guy, Weston, and he will give you one of those Bibles. Uh, We're in our final week of this series that we've been calling How to Build a Church. We have not said all that can be said about this topic, for sure. There are many other building blocks that we could look at as to how you go about building a healthy, well-functioning, ministry, mission-oriented church. There's a part of me that wishes that we were continuing this series for many months to come, but next week we're going to transition into an Advent series as we look forward to celebrating the birth of our Savior, Jesus, and that's going to be good too, so I'm excited about that, Um, but this is it for this series, and I think it seems fitting that we finish this series, How to Build a Church, by talking about one of the most crucial building blocks in a healthy, functioning church, which is this idea of love. Uh, you've probably driven past it just down the road here. They are working on this construction project on Smith Anky or Smith Ink, however you say it. And they're adding some lanes there. You've probably encountered the traffic. And it's just been fascinating to watch this process of them building this road. Uh, of course, in the end of the road being constructed, every single part of the construction process ends up being essential, doesn't it? The surveying that they did, the curbs that they put in, the asphalt they lay, the underground utilities, all of it becomes essential. But you can't get to that final end product without building a proper foundation first. And I think about that as we talk about how to build a church, there's really no more foundational building block in this whole discussion than love. I mean, this is really the concept that sits at the very heart of the Christian faith. It is is love. And before I lay this thing out, I want to try and clear up two common misconceptions about love, okay, that I think derail people or maybe derail the church. The first one is this, and and it tends to creep into our church because, or churches, because of how our culture erroneously defines love. Uh, I call this Love and license. License meaning freedom. It's born from a form of Christian liberalism. I'm not talking politics. I'm talking just looseness, not non-orthodox, that says that to love someone is to just let them do whatever they want. Like, if you love somebody, you just, 
Let them go free and do what they want. Let them be. You allow them to live their life according to their own rules. And, and actually, if you really, really love them, you not only allow them to live however they choose, but you do the even more righteous thing of coming alongside of them and saying, what you're doing is great. You actually affirm what they do. That's how our culture defines love. You endorse behavior. And I would say this is not only not Christian love. This is not the Christian definition of love. It's actually not love at all. And I think I can illustrate it quite simply. I love to use my children because they make great illustrations. If my daughter, who just turned six, and she's so independent and like, I just love how strong-willed she is, she would come to me. She would actually do this. She would come to me and she would say, Daddy, I think I'm competent to make my own decisions about my life. And I don't need your parental guidance, your wisdom, or your discipline any longer. For me to say, okay, Karis, go ahead, would be incredibly unloving of me as a parent. She would end up eating candy and sugar all day. She'd probably have diabetes within a couple of years. She would never go to sleep. She would play video games all day. She would treat her siblings with cruelty and selfishness, and she would become just a monster, I could only imagine. And if she actually managed to make it to adulthood, she would end up being painfully ignorant and selfish and a slob, okay? And so to love my children is to guide them towards what is true and what is right and what is good and what is God-honoring. To give them license, absolute freedom to do whatever they want without judgment, that's actually not love at all. It is, I think it's actually hatred for their eternal souls. Because how cold-hearted would I have to be to care so little about my children that the outcome of their lives doesn't mean anything to me? Look at John 15, chapter 15, verse 12. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, what's fascinating about this section of John is that it's the last lengthy discourse that Jesus gives to his disciples before he ends up being crucified. He's about to go to the cross, and so he's giving them, I guess you could say, his final lecture, like, Like, this is his closing statement to his ministry, his summary of all that he has taught them over the last three and a half years of taking them on this journey of discipleship and revealing the character of God to them. And all, I I think, maybe this is an overstatement, but I think essentially all that he wants them to know, to remind them of, ends up getting crammed, packed into John chapter 13 through 17. So that Jesus can kind of restate and summarize all of the really important parts of his mission and his ministry. It's his goodbye speech. Maybe you could call it his magnum opus. And I'd encourage you maybe to go home and read it together or read it later today. Maybe you want to read 13 through 17 with your family around the table. But Jesus talks about the building block of love several times in here. It's actually amazing how many different times he mentions this idea. But in this verse, John 15, 12, I think that Jesus destroys the idea of love and license. Let me try and explain it to you. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. How should we love one another to build the church? The same way that Christ loved us. 
And the fact that Jesus is about to go to the cross reminds us that Jesus does not give any license to humanity. He does not accept our sin. He does not believe that it is loving to simply leave people to their own devices. Do you see, if that were true, he never would have taken on human flesh. The incarnation would never have happened, and he certainly would never have gone to the cross if he thought leaving people to their own devices was a loving thing to do. By dying on the cross and paying our just penalty for sin, Jesus showed to us just how incredibly destructive sin is, didn't he? He demonstrates his love for us, of course, but he does it by showing us the evil nature of sin and then giving us a way out from that. And so do you understand, like actually as a Christian, if you're a believer, do you understand that the cross was your judgment before a holy God? At that moment, God condemned you for sin and then took that condemnation and put it on his own son so that he would suffer the consequences for you. And so you've been judged, and as a result, Christ has suffered what should have been your suffering. And so we need to understand Christian love is honest love. It does not merely accept sin. It does not give license. It has a limitless capacity for giving grace to people who are sinners, absolutely. But it never merely passes over sin as if it doesn't matter. There can be no room for license under the shadow of the cross. And so understand me clearly, as we talk about love, we're not talking about license. We're not saying that Christians are free to live their lives however they want, even if that means disobedience to God, because God just loves us so much, he just wants to just give us hugs, and that's all he cares about. That's not how it works. We're talking about the love that Christ displayed, that we are called to emulate, an honest and deep love that cares enough about people that we're willing to warn them of the danger and point them to the hope of forgiveness in the cross of Christ. Now, I would say the second misconception about love is where the pendulum swings to the opposite side. Don't you see this all the time? I mean, just that humanity has this tendency to go from one extreme to the other. And this is an error that tends to creep into the church as a defense against the cultural definition of love. It is born out of an effort to combat liberal love and license, and we call it legalism. Out of fear that a person may take advantage of the love of God and abuse his grace, some people fall back into law and into self-righteousness. And I believe their motives are initially pure. They're concerned that if we talk too much about love, people are going to end up sacrificing doctrine. They're going to end up giving up obedience to God because they think that love means that they can just do whatever they want. And so that's unacceptable. We cannot have people sacrificing doctrine or giving up obedience. And so what happens is we go too far. And in focusing on obedience, we have a tendency in legalism to cease to offer love to people who we don't think are as holy or as righteous as we are. And in doing that, we actually begin to play the role of God, deciding who's worthy of being loved and who's not worthy of being loved. And I think in John 15, 10, Jesus makes it clear that we cannot truly love him without displaying a lifetime of obedience. What Doug said was so right on today. 
Like, we have to finish the race in obedience to Jesus. There's no way around it. The Christian life requires obedience. Look at John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So much of what Jesus says is conditional on our obedience. Our justification is done because of what he did on the cross, but there are many promises in Scripture that are conditional on our obedience. And so the legalist is actually right in this sense, in the sense that obedience is a key ingredient in love. It is. But they begin to focus more on obedience than they do on love out of fear that telling people about love might cause them to live a life of license or moral carelessness. Look at John 13. Go back just a little bit to verses 34 to 35. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you. A new commandment I give to you. This is a commandment that trumps the Ten Commandments. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now I want to be very careful here because what I'm about to say, what I'm trying to say is difficult to articulate and I don't want to be misunderstood, okay? Uh, if, If something I say seems confusing, talk with me afterward. As important as obedience to God is, and as crucial as holiness is, as crucial as it is to adhere to the words of God and live in obedience to what he says, notice that Jesus does not say, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you live righteous and obedient lives. Now, again, being careful to, to keep us from falling into error, Peter actually does say something like this. If you read First Peter, he says it several different times. But my point in this section of John is this. It is love that sets the Christian apart from the rest of the world. That's what it is. The Pharisees lived righteous and obedient lives, but the ingredient that they lacked was love for God and love for other people. And as a result, Jesus outright rejected them. So let me try and summarize what I'm getting at, okay? We can't make either mistake. We, we can't allow the pendulum to go either way. We cannot think that love means that it's acceptable for Christians to do whatever they want and live however they choose because God's grace will just cover it and he loves us and so it's no big deal. Not acceptable. It's foolishness, it's error, it's license, it's unbiblical, and it's dangerous. But neither can we think that in order to keep people from falling into licentious lives, we must not love them too much. Or they're going to get the wrong idea. They're going to take advantage of grace and they're going to abuse the love of God. Christians are people who love. That, that, that is what defines us. And we let God sort out the details after that. Because he's the only one righteous or just or wise enough to sort out the details. And this means that out of love, we both correct the wayward, and out of love, we give them grace. Out of love, we speak the truth, and out of love, we welcome home the sinner. We have to keep those things in balance. After all, this is how Jesus loved, isn't it? I mean, it's just incredible to look at the way that he navigated the complexities of human relationships so well. 
to offer grace where grace was needed and truth where truth was needed. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John plays off of these words that he, taught, or that he heard Jesus teach and he restates the idea like this. Let me just read it for you. It's in 1 John chapter 4. And I know it's hard to follow along when somebody's just reading. So maybe you want to just close your eyes and listen. He writes this, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And beloved, if God so loved us, then we also ought to love one another. And so let me ask you just a quick introspective question, okay, for you to consider. Are you guilty of abusing the love of God? Are you guilty as a Christian of living in license, thinking that it's okay for you to do whatever you want because God will just, he'll just cover it over with his love and it's not that big of a deal? Or maybe on the other side of the spectrum, let me ask you, are you guilty of quenching the limitless love of God because of your legalism? that says that you must do this and this and this, not Christ has done it all for you. And I just want to encourage you to consider that. Are you guilty of swaying to either side? And if so, repent. Come back to the middle where you hold in balance the truth of obedience and the grace of God's love. Now, I think we can't properly discuss this subject without looking at one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 13, and you have to turn there with me, please. I don't know, maybe as a pastor it's cliche to teach on 1 Corinthians 13, but I'll I'll take my chances. While you're turning there, I think to some degree that Paul wrote these words, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, to keep us from falling into one of of these two errors, either license or legalism. And if you read this chapter in its wider context in 1 Corinthians, it's super interesting to note that it comes, it's almost like totally out of place. Have you ever noticed that? It comes right in the middle of a discussion about proper church function and proper church worship, where Paul is dealing with people who are guilty of both license and legalism. And then he drops this It almost seems randomly right in the middle because this is the answer to those problems. Let me read 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 7. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if, man, I have little kids at home and they do these things. Can I just tell you how annoying that is? All right, sorry, let me start over. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. 
If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I mean, isn't it obvious that this is how we should love? It's beautiful. It's lofty. I was an English literature major in college, and as a result, I've read my way through some of the best works of poetry and fiction that the Western world has to offer in the English language. And I can tell you that nothing even comes close to the poetic beauty and perfection of these verses of Scripture. It's divine, and it's so wonderful that these verses even resonate with the most hardened heart. Because we can all appreciate the perfection of this kind of love. It's what we were made for, isn't it? Both giving and receiving. This is how we should love, with patience, with humility, without rudeness or insistence on getting our own way, without resentment, celebrating what's right, bearing all suffering and hoping with an unquenchable hope. Man, how precious is it to love like this and to be loved like this? Okay, but are you ready for the bad news? You can't love like this. You just can't love like this. I mean, really, is it any wonder that people end up on their third or their fourth marriage? Is it any wonder that parents sometimes become alienated from their children? Is it any wonder that churches, churches split because people can't get along? Is it any wonder that people change jobs just to get away from the annoying coworker, or that neighbors ignore each other? Is it any wonder that we become isolated and lonely and self-reliant? I mean, sin has literally made it impossible for us to love like this because we're selfish, we're proud, we're rude, we're impatient. We're demanding, we're irritable, and we're narcissistic by nature. Like, that's just the way that we are. And 1 Corinthians 13 is how we should love, but we can't. Okay, but that's not the end of the story, right? I can see some of it. I can see it on your face. Some of you are sitting there, and you hear me say this, and you're just rebelling against this idea. You're like, I should have taught this morning because Grady doesn't know what he's talking about. See, the thing is, you know a very profound truth that not everybody does. It's the wonder of the gospel, the good news that transforms the human condition. You know that you should love like 1 Corinthians 13 says, but in your own strength you can't because you've tried and you've come up incredibly short. But the good news is this, that Jesus did love like this, and Jesus does love like this. And so what 1 Corinthians 13 really is, it's not a standard for us to achieve, but rather it's an inexhaustible treasure trove of the riches of God's love for us. Remember the words of Jesus in John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
The whole point of the story is not that we must get better at forcing ourselves to be loving people, but that Christ has loved us in this way. And do you have even the slightest understanding of God's love for you? I doubt it. I I know that I think that I don't really do. I struggle with it. I'm learning maybe to do that better, to understand his love for me. But it's a love that as we grow to comprehend it by nature, do you know what it does? It destroys both legalism and license. We dare not abuse his love. We long for him with such great desire that the fleeting temptations of sin, they subside. They become over time less and less attractive to us because Christ becomes more and more beautiful. Why would we choose the disappointing false promises of sin when we can have the limitless satisfaction of Christ? And so legalism, or uh, license, fades. I don't want anything other than Christ. And when it comes to legalism, why would we want to have our own righteousness through good works or moral living when we can have the righteousness of Christ freely applied to us at his expense and on our behalf? Why would we desire the harshness, the condemnation of the law when we can have the tenderness of God's love instead? And oh, how I wish there was a way that I could give you a greater understanding of God's love for you. Thank God for the Holy Spirit that does reveal that to us, even though it is beyond comprehension is what Scripture tells us. The Holy Spirit speaks it to us. But even though I can't, permit me to try. Permit me to try to give you just a tiny taste of his love to see if in some small way I can illustrate it, okay? I have four little kids. I mentioned them already, and I love them with all of my heart. But the truth is they are disgusting. (laughs) They literally cannot have a single meal without wearing half of what they try to eat all over them. And when they were really little, it was cute at first, you know, right? And then they get a little bit older, and now it's just gross. And on Friday, we were at this wedding, Friday night. I was actually officiating the wedding, so I was dressed up in my nice black suit. And the refreshments after the wedding were finger foods, meatballs with barbecue sauce, And delicious, buttery, cheesy sausages wrapped in a croissant pastry. Sliced peppers with ranch to dip them in. Cookies with plenty of colorful icing all over them. And I'm wearing my suit. And my kids are wearing their food. And for some reason, they just felt this great affection for me. This need to just hug me. And to be honest, I did not want their hugs. Because even though the ceremony was already over, I I didn't want them to ruin my suit. I did not want to wear their dinner all over my nice pants and my nice suit coat. I didn't want their stain. But not so with our God. He was willing to wear the stain so that he could embrace us. I was disgusting in my sin, and so were you. And yet God in his love, while wearing his best suit, was willing to take us into his arms, to get covered in our mess so that we could know his love. 
And I did hug my children. <clears throat> I did let them know that I loved them, but not without yelling at them and scolding them for getting their grubby fingers all over my clothes. <clears throat> and again, not so with our God. Freely and unconditionally on the cross, Jesus wore our stain. Without condition, without a lecture, without yelling in anger, without rebuke, he died with the open arms of embrace on the cross, willing to receive all who might come to him for forgiveness and grace. In patience, in humility, without resentment, bearing all the suffering in the desire that we would simply come and receive his love and his grace. And this is transformational love, isn't it? I wish I could help you understand it. But the point is this. You cannot see this love for what it is, truly comprehend it, truly understand it, and not have a transformation take place in your heart, not have a deep and sincere change of heart. This is grace and forgiveness and love that gives birth, new birth, to our lives, to our hearts. So that we move from people, understand this, who cannot possibly love like 1 Corinthians 13 to people who cannot help but love like Christ loved. That's the work that he does in us. Jesus bore the stain out of love for us. And in his death, he empowered us to do the same, to bear the stain. Not in precisely the same way. We don't atone for one another's sins like Christ did. But you cannot truly be part of the Christian community without getting other people's mess on you from time to time. And the love that defines the church, the body of Christ, it's a love that's willing to bear the stain. And as we build the church, we have to always keep our eyes on the cross and the resurrection. Because the cross helps us remember the affection, the love which God has for us that bore the stain. And the resurrection helps us to remember that the same power that enabled Christ to love in that way now lives inside of us so that we too can love in that way through the power of the Holy Spirit. So in closing, I just want to give you a couple of questions to chew on at the end of this series. Will you help us build the church? Not just this church, but the church, the body of Christ. Will you seek to understand the love of Jesus that sets you free from both license and legalism? Amen. 